Josh Eisenberg is a documentary filmmaker, and his film Slow Mo won over a dozen awards, including Best Short Documentary at South by Southwest, and premiered as a New York Times op doc and was shortlisted for an Academy Award. Now, his subsequent film, the Netflix original Resurface, won the jury prize at Tribeca and was nominated for an Emmy. He since co-directed the short documentaries Game Hawker for Patagonia Films and EcoHack. And we have co-director Brett Marty, who cut his teeth as a commercial director and made the transition to filmmaking with a handful of documentary and narrative shorts, which have won their share of jury awards and played at 100-plus film festivals, including Cannes, and were commissioned by The New Yorker, Patagonia Films, and National Geographic. Now, both have co-directed the Oscar-qualifying short film documentary EcoHack, and it follows biologists Tim Shields down an unconventional route to save the desert tortoise. EcoHack received its Oscar-qualified status after winning a Best Documentary Short at the Palm Springs International Short Fest and Hot Docs International in Toronto. So ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome film directors of EcoHack, Josh Eisenberg and Brad Marty to the show. Welcome, gentlemen. Uh, thank you. Great to be here. Well, this is, I'm going to direct this to both of you. So how did you come to learn about Tim Shields' work? Um, well, uh, yeah, go ahead, Brett. Uh, we had an editor that we worked with uh, named Key Haywood for years, and he, uh, he mentioned one day that uh, back when he was in high school, this uh, quirky figure came to his classroom to, in a toga uh, to talk about his work in the Mojave, and now that he's up to a bunch of strange things in the desert involving lasers and drones and exploding tortoise shells and Josh and I were both just kind of looked at each other and like, oh, we got to meet this guy. So next time he was in town, we had lunch and kind of got an update on everything he was working on and how it worked and, and why. Well, what intrigued uh, both of you about Tim's passion and dedication to saving the desert tortoise? Um, well, you know, Brett and I have been interested in conservation and issues around um, biodiversity and biodiversity loss for a long time. And, uh, you know, I personally uh, have been in love with animals since I was a kid. Um, the desert tortoise is a extremely charismatic creature, um, you know, really kind of drives imagination. Uh, you know, this giant tortoise wandering around the desert, very um, interesting and uh, appealing animal. And Tim has been out there with these desert tortoises for 30 years. He's like the, you know, sort of the Jane Goodall of the desert tortoise in a way. And it's um, his passion and interest in trying to find a way to save these animals is palpable. I mean, you could really feel it with him. And, you know, when we find a character as passionate as Tim, uh, you know, we just um, team up with them, uh, train our cameras in that person and, and hang on. And that's what we did. How long yeah. did it take you to film EcoHack? Uh, it was about um, two years. We'd been following his work while it developed uh, over the years. And, and then once it got to a point, just before the pandemic, actually, it was like, oh, Tim's really hitting his stride. He's taking these these tools like beyond just testing. And now he's actually getting them out in the wild and seeing how they work. And uh, so we started filming, I think, February 2020 and then wrapped up. I think it was wrapped up the filming kind of mid to late 2021 and then started editing. Now, why, you know, normally when uh, I'm talking to directors of, let's say, short films as an example, you know, I'm hearing timelines between 
oh, three, four, maybe five, maybe six days to, to film the short. Uh, because this is a documentary on a on a reptile, the, the desert tortoise, uh, is this is one reason why it took so long to, to film and put this together? Um, you know, a couple things to that. I mean, one, you know, as documentary filmmakers, even with shorts, these things take time. You know, these stories unfold slowly. Uh, we have to repeatedly check back in with our subjects. And that time creates an expansiveness and it lets you kind of tell the whole story. And the science that Tim was working on takes time too. Like over the course of filming, he um, developed and deployed multiple tools. Uh, you know, they perfected their laser. They um, were working on this exploding, fake exploding tortoise shell. So like between when we started and two years later, when we wrapped up, like, you know, things had just come such a long way. So I don't think we could have done this in, in a week. Um, uh, COVID, obviously, you know, this is we started in 2020. So, you know, that set us back a bit and that added uh, a certain amount of time to it. But, you know, typically we, Brett and I take our time with these films. Um, I think like the probably a year would be the, you know, the, the quickest um, documentary production window for a short that we've worked on so far. So this was not unusual in that regard. Well, why should the general population care about the desert tortoise? Um, well, I think there's a, it, it's, it's one, uh, species that's suffering from climate change, just like the, like so many different ecosystems around the world. And it's just indicative of what's happening to that particular ecosystem. And what really drew us to Tim is he's able to connect that species of tortoise to the larger problem and the, his new take on conservation, which is that we've pushed the planet so far to the brink that if we don't put our hands on the levers of the ecosystem itself, it's going to be a pretty lonely planet. You know, I, when I watched the film, I was intrigued because I love documentaries when it comes to nature and uh, animal life. And in this case, uh, a, a reptile that has an average lifespan between 30 to 50 years where some desert tortoises have been known to live as long as 80 years, comparing that to the giant tortoise, which we know can live upwards to 200 plus years. And so I was very intrigued because normally in nature, there's just this normal life cycle. But with the desert tortoise, it seems like their life cycle has become extremely short because what is it, the overpopulation of the raven? Uh, that's right. I mean, the the issue that the tortoises are facing right now, they face a lot of issues, but the issue that Tim is addressing in the film is this overpopulation of ravens. Now, as more and more people have moved to the Mojave Desert area, we're bringing with us, human populations are bringing with us fast food chains and dumpsters and even compost facilities and things that you think of as sort of being beneficial for the ecosystem. These are handouts for ravens. Ravens are smart. They get into the trash, they get into the compost, and their population has ballooned. So there have always been a few desert ravens out in the Mojave area, but like the amount of ravens out there is just astronomically larger than it has been over the last you know number of decades. And for the ravens, as Tim says, these tortoises, the baby tortoises are caviar. You know, they're an easy snack. We think of tortoises as being these, you know, armored creatures in these shells, but that really doesn't happen until the tortoises are five to 10 years old. So the young juvenile tortoises are just an easy snack for ravens and they've decimated the population. The population was already in trouble and the ravens have really 
um, taken a major bite, uh, pardon the pun, out of the tortoise population there. So that's that's the challenge that Tim is dealing with right now. And he felt like the Ravens were a place where he could really make a difference. They were a, a threat that was manageable, unlike something like, say, climate change, where, you know, how much can one person do out there? So he could deal with the Ravens. And that's what the film's about. You know, I was... I was intrigued because of the methods he was using and the like in a raven nest, you see three, maybe four eggs. But when it comes to the desert tortoise, um, what is the number of eggs from that type of species at, at one given time? Is it just a couple or is it 10? That's a great question. I think there's there's not that many that come per clutch for a tortoise, uh, and the the issue and it goes to the question you 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 asked about the population and lifespan is the there are plenty of old tortoises that can survive the attack of a raven. Well, the ones that have survived uh, their own pandemic decades ago and just the harsh conditions and more human traffic, but the the babies aren't living long enough to to be actually get to a mature age to reproduce. So it, it, I think while a tortoise will, will lay, uh, you know, a, a one or two clutches a season, I believe th not that many of them, if any, make it to uh, maturity. You know, I noticed that in the documentary, they were, they were, is Tim actually raising, um, the baby desert tortoise and do they actually, uh, I guess, keep them on hand maybe for five to 10 years. So the shell is hardened enough to withstand an attack by a raven before um, they let them off into the wild. No, that's a great question. Tim himself is not raising baby tortoises, but Tim is partnering with people who are. And that is sort of the vanguard. That's going to be the next iteration of tortoise conservation is maybe hand raising these tortoises till they're five years or even 10 years old and then releasing them in habitat that's been protected. So um, I don't think that's happening at scale yet, but, you know, if we want to save these creatures and this, you know, that's all to say too, I think there's some people hear about this kind of stuff and they think, well, you know, like, um, we're intervening in nature, you know, we need to let natural courses to, you know, happen on their, in their own way. And, you know, it's, there's something unnatural about raising tortoises and releasing them in the wild. But like, as we mentioned, you know, humans have already intervened in nature in the, in the wrong way. So we've, we've sent things off track, you know, I mean, there, you know, as nature would have it, we wouldn't have hundreds of thousands of people living out in the Mojave area, but we do. So given that, you know, raising baby tortoises and releasing them into the wild might be the only viable way to sort of deal with this. Um, and of course, uh, some of the things that Tim's doing with the ravens, with the lasers and the tortoise shells are another approach and, and they may need to work together to really save the species. You know, how long did it take both of you to realize the enormous undertaking that it uh, requires just to save one species? Uh, pretty quickly, honestly. Uh, you, you get out there and one of the first things we did with him is he took us to a compost facility and just, he's like, watch when I get out of my car and raise my arms. And these ravens are so smart that he, he just puts his arms up in the air and they just instantly take off. They didn't care about us, but they recognize, they're so smart, they recognized his face. And you just see basically the sky kind of getting blotted out by hundreds, if not thousands of ravens. And it, it just it made me reflect, like, how is, how is how can you even make a dent in something like this? Well, tell me about the teenager that's also in the film. He seems to be a bit of a genius. 
Uh, yeah, Frank Curcio. Um, I don't think he's a teenager anymore, although he was when he started off with Tim. He's, he's still quite young. Um, yeah, he's a, you know, sort of a self-taught um, engineering whiz. I mean, Tim would, as Tim puts it, like he would go to Frank with ideas. He'd say, hey, let's make a laser that can blast uh, green light or red light of birds. Uh, let's, um, can we make a fake exploding tortoise shell that's so realistic that it can fool this bird that's basically, you know, almost as smart as a person in terms of like identifying what a real or fake tortoise shell would look like. And Frank would do it and he'd figure out how to do it. He'd, he'd figure out how to 3D print this stuff. He would iterate over and over and over again. So, you know, Tim's the idea guy. Frank is the, um, you know, in the lab, um, in the garage kind of person. And, you know, what was fun about the film was that, you know, it takes that kind of partnership. It's like the classic, you know, James Bond uh, and Q, as they put it, right? Like, or Batman and, and um, Alfred or whoever it was who was making Batman's uh, gizmos. I can't remember. So. We kind of leaned into that, but that's really the dynamic that they have, though. Well, I was intrigued by the film with the fact that how smart the Ravens are. They they have a memory. They remember things. Um, when it comes to the uh, the laser, let's use the, the green laser for example. I was I was surprised uh, about that um, when they use the green laser to disperse the Ravens. Do the Ravens? get to the point of actually remembering the location where the green laser appeared and do they avoid that area or do they just keep coming back and you just have to keep firing that laser again? Um, it's a little bit of both. They, uh, Tim is, has, is just finishing up some pretty big studies that show um, that the number of Ravens drops pretty dramatically instantly. And they, they, and what they do is they fire them a lot right at the beginning, but then later on the, the, the Ravens learn over time and they, they don't just learn from individual experience. They communicate with each other. So that's why Tim says, uh, you know, a live Raven is better than a dead Raven because they teach each other. So over time they, they have to, you know, do cleanup and fire the raisin every ra laser every now and then just to remind them, but it's no, nowhere near, they have long memories. And so, yeah, at the beginning they fired a lot, but then the Ravens, they, you know, kind of, taking advantage of their own intelligence. The general idea is, you know, like, let's take this high, you know, the, 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 there's certain super high quality tortoise habitat. And if you can take these areas where the tortoises breed and the, and the, the babies have the best shot at finding the resources they need, the plants and the water they need to survive, if you can get the ravens to clear out of those areas, you can really let this population bounce back. It's not like you have to get the ravens to leave the entire uh, uh, Mojave Desert you have to preserve these super important tortoise uh, breeding grounds. And if you can do that, then you can give this uh, species a chance to rebound and, and you know rebuild the population. Well, let's talk about the human element for a moment because I wanna to get to the point of what, about the exploding uh, tortoise shell, but the human element. So we have the Mojave Desert. Uh, what is, and if the population is moving in, is the Mojave Desert not protected um, as uh, like a national park or is it just and then, you know, who actually owns the land so that people can come in or developers can come in and buy it and start uh, expanding a town? Well, you know, here's the thing, like, yes, there's plenty of um, land that's been preserved in the Mojave. You know, maybe you could argue about whether or not it's been enough, but there is land that's been preserved in the Mojave. Um, uh, but Ravens, uh, and there's cities in the Mojave, right? There's areas you can develop. 
the Ravens don't care about uh, the border between a, a preserved land and a city. They can they can go, um, the, you know, the population can grow because of a nearby city and they can get up and they can fly over to the national park or the, the national preserve and prey on tortoises over there. So I think that's the problem is like, you know, with an animal like the raven, it doesn't really matter what's been designated, you know, zoned for uh, uh, developing a community and what's been zoned to, as tortoise habitat. They can they can seamlessly move in between these spaces. And that's why they've been sort of maybe more of a problematic predator than like a coyote or something like that. Well, you know, Tim stated and I, Tim stated that the con, that controlling the raven population as well as their behavior was like you said earlier more manageable. But has there been any discussion with those in the area about restricting the use of the desert uh, to humans uh, to also be a manageable threat? I know that with uh, Certain areas, it could be New Mexico, Arizona, California, even Utah, where there's so many off-road vehicles that scar the desert for fun, but they're also destroying habitats of various animals and reptiles, as well as the vegetation. Has there been any talk about restricting the use of the Mojave Desert by humans to uh, focus on conservation? Um. Well, you know, uh, it's a very good question. And, you know, we didn't really get to that in the, you know, in the course of the film. So like, as far as like land use and the kind of political component of it, political in the sense of, you know, how, how do, how do we zone for this development? Like we didn't talk a lot about that, but we did, you know, yes, off-road vehicles are a major problem for tortoises as well. They get run over all the time by people off-roading. And, you know, I think there's been a lot of attempts to restrict um what areas of the desert you can ride your off-road vehicle in but you know unfortunately there's people sort of do what they want to do out there and it's not like there's a lot of law enforcement so you know that's been a persistent issue but um you know there's only so much you can do with changing the rules i'm sure that's something that's sort of an ongoing you know i'm sure there's ongoing attempts to protect this land from off-road vehicles but you know i think tim looked at the landscape of different opportunities to help the tortoise and he sort of picked the one that he felt like he could have the greatest impact on, as opposed to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to lobby for land use change. I think you probably looked at that and said, you know what, that's like the, uh, the bureaucracy and the challenges there are like, I'm not going to get anywhere with that. Yeah, so. I, I agree with that. Now, tell us something about those exploding tortoise shells. What are they actually using in the canisters? The chemical I think is called methyl anthranolate and it's, it's literally grape soda flavoring. And for whatever reason, no one's quite sure, ravens and a lot of other birds just hate the smell of it. So it drives them nuts and it, they, they, they stay, stay away, like probably even more than the laser just because of the, the horrible experience that they're having. So Tim's really trying to create like a, a patchwork of nightmare experiences out in the desert for them to keep them away from certain areas. Now also too, I noticed that uh, they also created a way to uh, I guess, stop ravens from hatching. Uh, what was the process that they were using? Um, they have, uh, it's called egg oiling. And, you know, if you cover the eggs with, with oil, a certain kind of oil, uh, the eggs don't hatch. And, um, you know, what they do is they deploy drones and they go up and they find the raven's nests and they can spray oil on the eggs there. And that, that's it for the clutch, you know, and the adult ravens learn pretty quickly, you know what, like when I lay eggs here, they don't, hatch into baby ravens and 
the Ravens will leave ultimately and lay their eggs elsewhere. So that's a, that's another way. It's a more, you know, that's sort of ratcheting up the, you know, the the battle against the Ravens another notch. But you know, that does get them to move and 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 raise chicks elsewhere in a place that's maybe not um, prime tortoise habitat. Well, you know, the short film eco hack is so informative. Um, is there? Uh, any plans of possibility of seeing uh, EcoHack become maybe a series on National Geographic? Um, we've we've talked about it, and we've we've uh, kind of been developing that idea for a while, and and just picking a series of scientists that are doing really interesting, innovative things that try and help out a species or an ecosystem. So it's it's something we're exploring for sure. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of other stories about scientists who are using technology and um, imagination to do things like this with other with other species all over the world. So, you know, we would love the opportunity to kind of build this out. Uh, these stories need to be told. There's a new field of conservation technology, which is sort of what we're getting at here. It's using technology and invention to save species and biodiversity. And like EcoHack is maybe this is sort of the first you know, film that we know of about that, but like, it certainly shouldn't be the last and these stories need to be told and we need to get people excited about um, getting involved. And for, you know, young people who are thinking about engineering, hey, this is a viable career. You can like use your engineering skills to try to save the planet. And that's that's a fun message that we want to share. Well, you had the perfect name for a, a television series. I mean, EcoHack, you couldn't have gotten better than that. You know, I, I can see the, the ease of promotion and marketing for that. And I can literally, I mean, if it was me, I would I would be sitting in front of my television waiting for the next episode because I just love watching things like this. And did you see, as you were working with Tim and, and, and filming, did you see uh, even uh, different expansion? Because I learned that with the desert tortoise, because they build those burrows in the desert, that also the, the Gila monster, uh, the desert roadrunner, and other animals will actually use those burrows themselves, possibly, I guess, uh, to use them as shelter, and, and possibly after the tortoise has moved out. I mean, there's an expansion from this? Um, yeah, in this, in, in a couple ways. Um, one, Tim is literally expanding his efforts and he's doing similar things that he's doing with the desert tortoise with other species. So but already biologists are calling him and saying, Hey, I'm, I'm trying to save the, uh, wood turtle and, you know, I'm going to, I'm not a scientist. I'm going to, I can't tell you where this, you know, particular animal lives, but people are, people who are working with other populations are calling Tim and saying, Hey, what can we do over here with this creature in this environment? So yeah, like this is gonna, what, what Tim's doing can be applied to other biological problems out there. Secondly, um, you know, as the uh, ecosystems are an interconnected web of different kinds of creatures and you can't lose the desert tortoise and not impact other animals in the desert. So, you know, trying to save the desert tortoise isn't just trying to save the desert tortoise, it's trying to preserve all the different animals in the desert because they all need each other to sustain this um, intricate ecosystem out there. Well, when you first started filming uh, with Tim, um, and then I guess it took maybe with it taking over a year filming with Tim, did you, both of you, did you get to see a reduction of the population of the ravens that were uh, attacking the tortoise? 
Yeah, sorry, with your question, did we see any attacks ourselves? Oh, well, no. Did you see a reduction in the Raven population as you had spent over a year filming uh, your documentary with Tim? Uh, Tim's data is a multi-year project, so he uh, is still in the process of collecting a lot of it, and they've gotten grants from the National Science Foundation to keep collecting this data, and uh, furthermore, with uh, I think the Eisenhower Genius Grant they also got, so they are starting to see some preliminary data that's super hopeful, and they're doing small private studies too, like one around a sewage treatment plant, which disgustingly ravens also love, uh, that they, they're basically able to keep ravens away completely with just with just a, a few uh, newer innovations that we didn't cover in the film yet that he inf- kind of, they've kind of invented afterwards so it's incredibly pro- promising in like a small scale and they're just about to start something that it would be mojave wide i think you could i think both of you could probably do a film documentary just on the raven alone <laughs> yeah. oh yeah absolutely i mean the ravens are fascinating and you know it's important to convey to people like tim shields uh, he, he's a fan of ravens. He doesn't hate ravens. He's not trying to take out the raven population. You know, the ravens are smart. They can find their lunch literally anywhere on the planet. They're like people. So, you know, you can get them out of the desert, get them out of the prime tortoise habitat. They're going to be fine. They're going to go somewhere else and they're going to thrive. I got, you know, I can probably walk out my front door right now in Oakland and could point out 20 ravens within 10 feet of my house. So they're really cool animals. And I think, you know, we, I think working on this film kind of, you know, both um, raised our level of respect for tortoises and for ravens for that matter. Well, I've always been interested in the tortoise for one reason, especially the giant tortoise, because of the fact that it's the perfect species to study the aging process. Mm. And uh, I'll put my darker hat on here for a second. For a lot of people who do not know about the, the giant tortoise, there is a there's a substance in our body called SOD, which is sodium oxidase dismutase. It is that very nutrient that is found in the giant tortoise. It contains the highest levels of SOD than any species in the whole world. That is the one nutrient they believe that is directly linked to the aging process. So the more you have the possibility of the longer that you live. So even if it's from the giant tortoise or the desert tortoise, we need to, you know, we need to work hard. And and I applaud Tim and I applaud both of you for bringing this forward so we can learn more and more on not just saving one species, but uh, saving all species on our planet. Thank you. Thank you. That's um, that's new information to us about the giant tortoise. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's, uh, it's fascinating. I've studied anti-aging uh, my whole career, but for both of you, something even more exciting. How, what does it mean to the both of you to have the film EcoHack be Oscar qualified? It's really exciting. Uh, and it, I think one thing we were trying to do with this film that we are, it seems like it's working, that we're really excited about is, you know, we telling stories about things like climate change, especially are really important to us. Uh, but they're often really, and, and, and people want to see them and their stories people want to know, but they're, they're really hard to watch. They're often really depressing and gloomy and rightfully so, but that can often not be the greatest motivator. So Josh and I, with this film, we're trying to 
explore a way, like how can we make, tell stories about climate change that aren't really depressing and really gloomy? And with this film, we're like, we, we think we can make this really fun and exciting and really funny, hopefully. And so, and it, at film festivals and things like that, we've really, and then audiences we watch it with, it's really been true. Like people are laughing and they feel kind of relieved to, to be able to learn about this and, and see someone doing important work for the environment and be kind of excited and insp inspired by it. It is. I mean, and uh, I think you hit the nail on the head here because this is one of the first films that I've seen that was not depressing at all. It was extremely educational. It was informative. Uh, for me, and hopefully the, uh, you know, the audience, audiences around the world are getting interested. They're intrigued. It, it's a very positive film. Uh, yes, you know, he shows, you know, some of the, the baby tortoises that were attacked by the ravens, uh, or I should say um, post-mortem, uh, but it wasn't depressing at all. It was actually inspiring to where I wanted, I wanted the film to, to actually go longer so I could learn more and more because I just love this kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for saying that. And yeah, you know, if we're going to, I think that's the, the thinking here is like, we're going to try to get people inspired and excited and motivated to go out and try to like save species, save ecosystems, maybe even save the planet. If we can be as bold as to say that it's going to be through inspiration, through making people feel good and excited and like they can do something and that they can have fun doing it. That's the crazy part. You know, Tim yeah. is having a good time out there in the desert trying to save this animal. He's not walking around depressed, staring at his navel, thinking, wow, the world's coming to an end. And I think that's what that's what lets him um, do what he does. That's his sort of secret sauce. And we want to share that with people and get people kind of thinking along those lines a little bit more. You know what? Both of you have done something that's very rare when it comes to a documentary about, let's say, saving a species or saving a living thing. I personally get really, really tired of seeing protesters on the news. They're either destroying someone's museum or destroying whatever to get their point across. My I thought it my thought is is instead of complaining or griping, why don't you be part of the actual solution? Tim is part of the solution. Both of you are part of the solution because you're bringing something positive. What attracts people? Positivity attracts people. When we see negativity, that's when people are, are basically rolling their eyes and walking the other way. So to me, you have brought a perfect formula for all of us to get involved to do something positive for every living thing and our planet. Um, yeah, thank you so much for saying that. I mean, I think, you know, we, we can't, you know, it's an open question as to the efficacy of, of the various different forms of trying to deal with this. So, you know, without speaking directly to, to, to some of the, you know, protests and all that, because there, maybe there's a place for them in certain instances. I think for Brett and I, um, it's more fun for us to make films about uh, the kinds of things that Tim is doing. It's exciting. It makes us feel inspired. And I think that's what we want to do. That's what I'd like to do with my time here is spend it with people who are building solutions and then share those stories out with people and see if we can get other people thinking out of the box and kind of doing similar things. There's a lot of other smart people who are hopefully going to see this film and say, Hey, you know what? I got an idea for another 
problem that nobody could solve. And it's going to take, you know, this machine and this approach or whatever it is. So you never know what's going to happen. And that's, that's a fun place to be. Well, do, uh, do either one of you have a particular type of uh, animal or species that you would love to do a documentary about? That's a great question. Um, God, you know, just thinking about, I just took my young daughter to the zoo the other day and it's just looking around just all the animals that I hope will still be around when she's my age. And it makes me, it kind of makes me really passionate to, to want to tell stories about a lot of them. So it'd be really hard to pick one gorillas and just in their, you know, and monkeys and their, how much they <clears throat> remind us of ourselves and you can read their emotions on their faces just like you can with other people. I think uh, those would be a lot of fun to spend time with off the top of my head. And yeah. how about you, Josh? Um, you know, I, it's hard to say. I mean, honestly, like I, um, the animal is less important to me than the, than the person. Uh, I love all animals. There's a lot of animals I'm interested in. I would, I feel lucky to kind of get to spend time with out in the wild with any kind of creature, but, um, you know, it's, we'd like to find people who are like Tim, who are out there working with a particular species and passionate, you know, passionate about that. And then, you know, that's that's what the film's about. And then the animal is like, we're going to see the animal through um, that lens. So if we had set out to just make a nature film about tortoises with like, you know, voiceover <laughs> telling us, hey, you know, this tortoise is doing that and this, that and the other, I, it just wouldn't have been um, as fun an experience for us. So like, we're going to look for that next um, field biologist who's doing something really innovative and that that's going to be the subject of the next project or it's going to be EcoHack 2 or maybe both. So we'll see. I, I like that. I think in the modern era, well, it can be just called EcoHack 2.0. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, perfect name. I, you know, and National Geographic, if you're listening or watching, uh, this needs to be an ongoing weekly series. Um, I can see this thing going in a million different directions and never ending. Uh, it's kind of like uh, watching some of the animal shows back in the 1970s and early 80s that were always on Sunday afternoon. And I, and I see EcoHack filling that void that we don't get at this moment. But, uh, you know, for both, for both of you, uh, are either one of you working on anything new at the moment that you could share? Yeah, we are. We're working on a, a, a new piece that's very much, uh, it's almost like a, a sibling film to EcoHack uh, that it's about an entirely different topic, but it's about a, the, uh, a team of plant biologists that, are, that think they have a really unique way to make plants sequester more carbon in a way that could cut the pace of climate change dramatically. So it's a, it's a really, and that, and that's kind of selling it pretty small. Uh, it's a, it's a really exciting story. Well, you know what? I think the best, since both of you are in the Bay area of California, I think one of the best examples of what the difference between normal everyday life versus when everybody was, uh, locked down at home was to see the skyline of Los Angeles, California, go from smoggy to absolute uh, clarity. And I've even talked to a few people. One was living there for about five years. And he said, you know, when during the lockdown, my, the biggest surprise to me was when I walked out my front door to get the paper, I didn't know there was a mountain range in front of me. I had that experience when I lived in LA, actually. I lived there for um, 
six weeks, I think, before I, I in Venice. And then one day I went out of my house and I saw the mountain that was down Venice Boulevard. I mean, obviously it was way on the distance and I didn't know it was there. It was crazy. It was like shocking. I was like, wow, what if you could see this every day? Well, I think the greatest thing is to, uh, if we could just breathe clean air every day. But uh, both of you have done a stellar job. And my last question to both of you, what has the art of filmmaking taught you about our world? Um, well, I can, I can jump in with an idea. I'll let Brett marinate yeah. on his minute, but... Um, for me, documentary filmmaking specifically and the way that we've approached it, um, you know, I know it's a cliche to say, you know, like one person has the power to, um, you know, affect the world. And I think, you know, right now with as much going on in the world as, as we see, it's like, it's really hard to believe that. It's like, come on, there's so much going on. How can one person make a difference? Um, that idea has been reaffirmed over and over and over again in, in the films we've worked on. We've either made projects about one person who has made a major impact or we've seen that through the process of making the film you know you, you kind of hope that the film's going to get out into the world and affect real change in some capacity sometimes that change comes from that one one person who sees it and it makes them say hey you know what i'm going to do this differently and suddenly it's like the butterfly effect and you know i feel almost cheesy saying it but like i have literally seen um the ramifications of that so uh, if the filmmaking process has really been a reminder of just the power, uh, you never know what, what the impact of whatever it is you want to do is going to be. And so it's worth doing. And sometimes it can be a lot bigger than you would have imagined. Yeah, that's a, a pretty profound answer. So, uh, I'll give something smaller, which is working on documentary has been, uh, it's been a really great learning experience just personally, like figuring out more things about how the human brain works, like how, what Josh was talking about, where, you know, a story about a topic about tortoises isn't nearly as interesting to people, to humans, as it is when there's a person that you follow, an interesting character, and when we can attach our, our empathy to them and we can get excited about what they're excited about and attach to their passions. So it's, it's really like from the big to the small, it, it really feels like there, there's, a, there's a lot that working learning on an individual basis from person to person that i can learn but also just so much about humans in general and how we work and how we think and and ways to get stories across to people in ways that matter and is meaningful well both of you are very powerful filmmakers and i congratulate you on eco hack to learn more about tim shield's work go to hardshellslab.com and eco hack short film documentary is definitely worth every minute and I personally love the film. We need to learn and understand that what our planet is experiencing and how we can help it in some way. Now, Tim Shields' work expands beyond the tortoise. It actually expands to the Gila monster, the desert roadrunner, the desert owls, as these creatures... <clears throat> <clears throat> okay, take two. <clears throat> Take two, five, four, three, two. <clears throat> to learn more about Tim Shields' work, go to hardshelllabs.com. EcoHack short film documentary is definitely worth every minute, and I personally love the film. We need to learn and understand that what our planet is experiencing 
and how we can help it in some way. Now, Tim Shields' work expands beyond the tortoise. It actually expands to the Gila monster, the desert roadrunner, the desert owls, as these creatures will use the burrows of the tortoise for shelter. See, our world is so fascinating, and we need to take more time to experience it. Now, many thanks to Joshua Eisenberg and Brett Marty for sharing their incredible short film documentary, EcoHack, with us today. And ladies and gentlemen, you can watch the full interview on our various online platforms and on my television show, The Dr. Ward Bond Show, The Ward Bond Show, and please subscribe to our new online show, Bond on Cinema, the perfect place for film lovers to get an in-depth interviews with top film directors, producers, screenwriters, and actors, and even more. And if you love movies, you'll love Bond on Cinema. And as for me... I'll see you next time.